Strangers in a Strange Land. And today, uh, I'm reminded of the book as I was studying this past week. Um, I don't know if you remember this. Some of you who have been around a little while might remember. The, the book entitled, It Takes a Village. And it came from Hillary Clinton uh, in 1996. And so it caused a lot of controversy, uh, the comment, It Takes a Village. And it was from an African proverb that said, It takes a village to raise a child. <clears throat> and it came from a, a, a perspective where it said, you know, it takes our entire society. And people had issue with that. They're saying, no, 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 it doesn't take a society, but it takes a family. And to that we readily agree. But, and I'd like to take her quote, though, and I'd like to tweak it slightly, because I do think, since we are called village, um, that it takes this village to help raise a Christian. And it doesn't just take a family, but it takes a family of believers uniting together. God does set the solitary in families, and he has set up the family unit, but he takes the family and he puts it within a body of believers that we can come alongside one another and live this life called the Christian life. And it's, it's a hard life. I mean, it, Christ did say that, my, that, that it's easy, but we also know that it's also very hard. So it's easy in the sense that we don't have to accomplish our salvation. It's already been accomplished for us on the cross of Christ. We enter into that salvation by faith. But we also know that it's difficult because we encounter people in the real world every day. We deal with situations that are never ideal. We deal with tough bosses. We deal with stresses. We deal with suffering. We deal with bodily ailments. We deal with problems with our kids, problems with our spouses, problems at our workplace, problems at our schools. We're all dealing with these different issues. But still, God calls us to live this life together. And as a body of believers uniting together, we have to understand how to progress in this Christian life that he has for each one of us to live. It's of vital importance to be able to do this. That's what Peter is referring to. As he's talking to the church that was dispersed over the known world, they were facing extreme suffering in a way that we can't even possibly begin to imagine. And they were isolated from one another. And he's writing, he has written this letter to, to them to show how, this is how you are to behave. And you have to remember, the church, we sometimes think of these guys with halos on their heads, and we forget that they were also very real people dealing with very real situations, trying to live out their Christian life in the midst of a very difficult time. And he, so it, the world is not so far removed from us in that they were real people struggling with real issues. And we all struggle in some way or another. But he's, he finishes off this last section that we've been setting over the past several weeks in talking about um, submitting to authorities, how the husband and wife also relationship works. And then he finishes off with, finally, all of you. Now, the idea there, the way he's speaking is, is that finally, as a body, this is how we are to live. You can't be a lone ranger, solitary Christian. It doesn't work. Christ didn't just save you as an individual. I mean, he does save individuals, but he saves you as an individual to put you in a body of believers that we can come alongside one another to live this Christian life, that we are to progress together. So to, that's what we're going to look at today, how that it takes a village of believers, if you will, this body that God has placed us in to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to come alongside, to, to lock arms with one another, to battle together for the kingdom of God as we pursue this Christian life together. But before we get into that, let's pause for a moment and ask for God's blessing on our time together. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence now humbly. 
knowing how quickly and how much it's ingrained within each one of us that we are to be rebels, that we are to be independent and assert our own rights. And we forget so oftentimes that we are to be together with other believers. How quickly we forget that. Lord, help us to see today how we are to live this Christian life together as a body, to progress on, to encourage one another, to love one another, to forgive one another, to all of these other commands that's in Scripture that show that we are together. Lord, strip away anything that's keeping us from seeing who you are. May we receive from your word what you would have us to take away with us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's really kind of jump into our text and start right off. I'm going to give you the first point here right away. The first point is this. If we're to follow Christ in this local village that God has placed us in, it requires us pursuing a righteous lifestyle with our fellow believers. Pursuing a righteous lifestyle with fellow believers. Like I said before, it's not just an individual. It's together. That's why he says in the text, finally, all of you. It's the people that are coming together. He's referring to everyone, all of you. And if we're to follow Christ together, we need to make sure that we are truly bonding together, that we have a common calling, a common calling. Look down at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. See, the word there is passive in Greek, that God has called us to this life, and not just by ourselves, but together, to be together. Different generations. It's not just one generation, but it's different generations, all coming to learn together, to encourage together. We are called to this life. God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light to bond together, to share together, to, to work out this together. But I don't, know, I, know, I don't know about you, but for me, this is the hardest part of the Christian life. It's easy to talk about my relationship with God. That's easy, because it just involves me and God. And God is a pretty likable guy most times. He really is. He doesn't get on my nerves much. He, he, you know, he doesn't have a lot of quirks to his personality. He's, he's friendly. He's loving. I also know he's a God of wrath. I fear him. But he doesn't have those annoying habits and phrases and things that he goes back to and personality quirks that other people do. Right? You know what, it's, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are nodding because you're thinking of me right now. Okay? But we all have those issues. And this is where it gets very, very difficult. The Christian life being worked out as a body of believers is where our sanctification is truly seen. And it's not easy. And we are going to step on one another's toes. And we are going to have to deal with all of our personalities and our quirks and our hookups and our hangups and our bad habits. That's what the body is. But it's amazing to me how we expect other Christians to be perfect, yet we're willing to give ourselves excuses. You ever had that? I mean, we have other very high standards for everybody else, but we want it to be a... a a flexible chart for ourselves. We want to be able to excuse and allow these different things for ourselves. Please be patient with me. And yet we're not exercising patience to other people. See, God has called us to this life and how to live this life as a body. And not just as a body locally, but a body universally. The global church that we have brothers and sisters all over the world that are going through great persecution right now. And it's even been said that there is more persecution going on now more than any other century 
in history. We forget that because we are fairly insulated in that regard. I mean, we have a church building that we're meeting in. That's incredible to think about. I mean, we don't have to worry about the authorities breaking in and and taking us out. We don't have to think about that. And then how do we respond to such persecution? It's it's very hard to think about for us because do you know and realize that we are losing a lot of credibility and authority in the public square in a way that has never been seen in the United States. And we don't know how to act because many of us have been born and live within what's called a Christendom culture where the Christians were the majority. Many of you that are older and been around sometime, you remember what it was like. You remember, and I'm not sure if it was here, but I remember interacting with some older saints when I was living in New England, and they had told me, they said, we remember when we got out of school early for catechism classes, out of the public school to go into churches. And now, I mean, that's unfathomable. You can't even pray in school. We have all of these different things going on, and and seeing how the power that we've had within the culture has now been removed. We don't know how to act. How do we respond to that? How do, they res- how do we respond when people call us dumb or intolerant? How do we respond to that? Now, I'll tell you, we have not done well. When we get threatened and put into a corner, <clears throat> we have a tendency to lash out. I know I do. I do that all the time. And it takes work, and it takes repentance. And Jesus doesn't call us to lash out. We have to follow the example of Christ to see that God has called us as a body to something entirely different. And that's what we have to be continually reminded of. See, God has called us to this righteous life together, but many of us don't think so. Many of us are just content with the fire insurance policy of faith, where we're all good. We get the faith and we're done. We don't have to do anything else. As if obedience was optional, like like in your car, like a moonroof. The moonroof is optional. We don't want that package. We just want the basic model and we're all happy. But that's not how the Christian life is, and that's not what obedience is. It's not optional. It's the entirety. It's like going to the quarry in Batavia. Everybody ever, you've been to the quarry in Batavia before? Yeah. Have you ever tried to go on that dive that's high? Okay, someone suckered me into that. All right? And I, I see these little kids going, wee! And I'm like, ah, kids can do that. I can do that, no problem. I get up there and I'm like, ooh. And I'm looking at my wife, is my, my, health, my life insurance all good? It's good, okay. And I look down, and I, and I jump off. And you jump off, and how much of, I, how much of me goes underwater? Just a port, part of me? Even if I belly flop, how much goes underwater? Still all of me, right? See, that's what it, the Christian life is, is you're to jump all the way in, and you're to go all the way in. And it's just the force of the call and and the body exerting on me. And it's the same for the soul that follows Christ. When we go to follow Christ, it's to be all of us plunged in. He draws us in, the entirety of us. Not just a portion of us, but all of us are drawn in. And it's not optional, this righteous life. It's a pursuit that each one of us must adopt as our own. So we can see then that we have a common calling. We also read that we are to have unity of mind. The idea is harmony. Harmony. You ever, you ever heard a song with harmony in it? 
People have different parts. We all have different voices, and they're all working together for a common for common cause. You, you, you see those all those different music groups, and you have like the bass and the tenor, and you, you have the, the different women's voices, and hearing this harmony that comes out is just so beautiful. And it just causes you to go, Ooh. you ever had those chills in a good song like that? You know, when you sing and you feel so beautiful, the harmony that comes over. But we also know what it's like to hear a bad singer. Anybody, everyone seen American Idol? A lot of bad singers in American Idol, you know, and, and they, they get up there and you have people that are singing out of tune. That's bad, too. I remember I was singing at a at a concert. I used to be in a show choir. OK, don't hold that against me. But I, I was in a show choir and I remember performing one time and uh, there was like stadium seating. We were performing and and I was singing this 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 moment where I was to hit the high note and to make the harmony, everything really well. And there was uh, one man, he was right in my line of sight, and he was a musician. And musicians who are musicians, you, you know what this is like, uh, musicians, that if you hear something that's just slightly off, what do you do? Okay, I'm looking at this guy, and I'm singing this note, and I see him do this. And I'm like, oh, I can't do anything about it now. You know, because it's off. Something's not right, and it causes us to grate within us. See, when we don't have that unity of mind, that harmony, it causes people to do this. So we're to have that unity of mind. And the idea there is harmony. And what I see that as is a commitment. We have a same commitment together to, to, to pursue Christ together, to be taught together, to learn how this Christian life works together. We have a common commitment that transcends our differences. I've been reading a lot on American history as of late, and I, I'm, I'm still amazed at the different aspects and the facets of the Revolutionary War. I'm amazed. I, I, stuff that you're taught as a child, you don't realize how difficult it really was. We think of everybody together walking around with a little fife and drum and playing around, and, and you don't realize that they were majorly conflicted, especially between the North and the South. I mean, they had no idea how this whole thing was going to turn out. And the North and the South had so many different conflicts in, in regards to slavery and then what type of government that was going to have. They were going back and forth. But when, the, the, when they saw the common enemy, they united together because they realized that the thing that was, far, that was against them, the enemy, was great, great, the enemy that was across the sea was greater than any differences that they had. So they bonded together to fight a common enemy. See, that's how we are as the body of Christ, that what unites us is far greater than anything that differentiates us. So we're to be bonding together, old and young, single, married, divorced, widowed. We're all to come together to be this body with all of our different personalities, with all of our giftedness, and moving together. And when we do that, that is a powerful force. It's a powerful force. I'm amazed at how much power that is when we're united together as a body. All of us and all of our uniqueness. I was watching a special last night, Modern Marvels. Anybody ever watch one of those Modern Marvels things? Man, it's pretty amazing. They were talking about the Golden Gate Bridge and how it came to be. What I was amazed at them, they said that, that the two cables that hold it together, because it's a suspension bridge, and how it is is that they put tons of concrete into the, the ground on uh, one side of the bay and then on the other, and they have these two cables that go up that loop onto the... the standing up things. I don't know what those are. And then they go across, and it's held in and anchored there. And it's these two cables that support the bridge. 
really support the bridge. And what amazes me about these two cables is that what they're made up of, they're made up with pencil thin, about the size of a little piece of lead. Thousands of them. I mean, seven, I think there's like 75,000 of them all united together. These little, little pieces of wire united together to create this powerful bridge that can hold up. And they said, it's, since it's been up, 1.8 billion vehicles have passed over it. And I think of us, all of us, we feel very small and insignificant at times. But when we bond together to be the body that God wants us to be, we're an unstoppable force. Not only in this community, but in the world. Think about what God can do through us as we submit and live our lives to him. I mean, what can God do here? God can do whatever he wants to do. But he, he, he works in proportion to us seeking him, not only as individuals, but as a body. Are we praying together? Are we sacrificing ourselves to serve together, of love together? Do we have unity of mind and unity of mission, what God can do, not only here, but across the nations? I've been dreaming a lot lately, asking God to give us a vision for the body. And as elders, we've been talking about this. What does God want to do here? And it's limitless. I mean, we thought, we realized that our facility is, is starting to get run down, and we want to we redo our basement and make it nice. We want to redo all the flooring there, but that's just one thing. We want to redo the sanctuary sometime, and that's another thing. But you know what? We think that the building's even inadequate, so maybe God has a building in the future. But you know what? That's just a building. And we thought about, what about a church plant? Maybe God wants us to plant a church in East Aurora. Maybe God wants to plant a church in, in North Aurora or in Montgomery. Or What does God want to do? We don't know. We're asking. And what does God want us to do to help reach the nations? To go to Indonesia. To go to Malaysia. To go to China. To be in prayer for the underground church. What does God want us to do? To reach the cities and to reach the nations. What is God calling us to do as a body? It's limitless. And if you don't think it's limitless, then your God is too small. Because my God reaches the nations. My God is powerful. And sometimes I think we forget how big and how powerful God is. But that doesn't, that God works in conjunction with his people living in obedience to him. Seeking his face and living a righteous life. And that comes when we submit to that calling that he has for us. And then we commit ourselves. And then we also have to realize that we are to have great compassion. Great compassion. The word there is a tender heart. And it's, it's really splunkno. And it literally means from the gut or having guts. Having guts. It's, it's a tender heart. And you think, wow, tender heart means having guts. It means to feel intensely for one another. Being compassionate and hurting for them in such a way that it moves you to action. Now notice there's another word there. We're to have sympathy. Sympathy for one another. Sympathy means sharing the feeling, especially in regards to pity and sorrow. Here I want you to see the scripture in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. The scripture says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now this is where we get into trouble. Because when someone goes through a tragedy that we have not yet experienced, we have a tendency to read our experience into them, and we say to them, or in our, in our minds, it's really not that bad. It's really not that bad. Buck up. Or we say, you know, if someone, a spouse dies, we say they're in a better place. We have a tendency to cliche them to death. And I'm reminded of a woman who lost her husband and her two children on the mission field. And people would say that to her. 
I mean, is the scripture true that it's God works things together for our good? Yes. But is that the right time to say it? No. And she said people would cliche her, just cliche her. And she, was, she goes, I didn't really start to heal in my life until I was laying on the couch one day. And uh, a pastor who was a friend of mine came by, put his hand on my head, kicked the top of it, and walked away. He didn't need to say a word. He was having healing with her. He was hurting with her. We know what it's like when you're going through a hard time. The people that, that are talking to you and telling you why you're suffering and why you're going through the hard time, is that the people that help you? Or is it the person that comes alongside and cries with you? Cries with you. That hurts with you. That weaves with you. That identifies with you. And that's what Peter is calling us to. To have this common compassion and sympathy for one another. But it's this compassion from the gut that moves us to action. See, sympathy is feeling with someone, hurting with them, and, and, and feeling with them. But compassion is moved to action after that. It's, it's within ourselves that we are moved to help another individual. I'm reminded of this in, uh, the, with the parable of the good Samaritan. Let's call that up there for me. Luke chapter 10, 33 through 37. And we're all familiar with this passage. I mean, it's one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. And this is what we read. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came up to where he was. Now, let's backtrack for a moment just to get our bearings. Is that there a man who had been traveling on the road and been mugged, beat up, left for dead. I mean, the guy stripped, beat up. People thought that he was dead. And that we read in the text that two people, two people should have helped were the Levite and a priest like a deacon and a pastor walking along and instead of helping him and extending help they just pass right by pass right by they didn't do anything to help whatsoever but then a samaritan comes along and jesus is telling this to a jewish audience and he's and as he's telling this when they hear the word samaritan they cringe they cringe because the Samaritan was considered a half-breed outside of the covenant people of God. It was a racial issue. And they are so frustrated that a Samaritan would stop and help. But notice, the Samaritan, what happens here? It says when he saw where, saw where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He felt pain for this man. He hurt for him. Now, some of us, that's just good enough to, to hurt for him. But not this man. His compassion is moving him to action. And he says, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying this, and I love this part right here, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Tremendous cost to himself. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, we're to have a compassion, not only for one another, but for those that are around us. We're to have compassion, this deep move to act. Now, we also see that it involves us having not only the right compassion, but the right conduct. The right conduct. That's what God's asking us to have. That's why we see that brotherly love. Philadelphos, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That we're to be moved to compassion and then have love for them. And our conduct, brotherly love, to care about one another. 
And not only that, we're to also be humble-minded. Humble-minded. You know what I love about humble-minded? As I was thinking of this, I thought, when when is the time that, how do we be humble-minded? How do we be humble-minded? And I was reminded of something. Uh, I was reminded of when I used to play football many many pounds ago. Um, And I played football, and I, I was a running back. And I, uh, I had been in junior football, and I achieved a great amount of success in junior football. So when I got into high school, I was extremely cocky. Teenage boys were cocky anyway. Uh, teenage boys that were really good athletically are even more so cocky. And so I remember being in practice, and I was working with, uh, we were pr- practicing with the, the freshmen, we were even practicing with the, the varsity. And I'm thinking I'm going to be this great running back, and they've never seen the likes of me. And I remember just uh, doing, I was bigger than a lot of the other kids when I was younger, and I remember being in practice, and I remember receiving a handoff, and I went through the line, and I'm running like high, like this. Okay, anybody's played football, you know what happens. The defensive lineman comes up with his arm and just goes, and I I went back and I dropped the ball, and the coach just looked down at me and goes, you're such an idiot. (laughs) And he told me, he goes, you know what you need to do? And this is what they showed me, you stay low. Hold on and stay low. Hold on and stay low. And that's, see, that's what it means to be humble-minded, is to realize that I need to, be, I need to stay low. I need to keep t- down to the ground. You need, I keep, keep hold on to God and stay down. To be humble-minded, to hold on to Christ, to realize that I'm not all that, and as soon as I do all that, I'm going to be on my back. God wants us to stay low and keep holding on to Him. And we're to have this right conduct, the way, way we think of ourselves and how we interact with one another, that we have true brotherly love for one another. Now, let's, let's, that's not all we see. Look at verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We must turn away from doing evil, doing that which is good, and seek and pursue peace. Now, that's hard to do. And I'm not talking about give peace a chance. It's not what I'm talking about. But it's pursuing reconciliation when we've been wronged or we've wronged someone. Now, sometimes I don't even know if I've wronged someone. I'm sure I've stepped on people's toes here, and I don't even know it. You've got to let me know. Or let other people know. Because if not, what we have a tendency to do is nurture a grudge. And when we nurture a grudge, that grows into bitterness. And then it just erupts one day. And then that person has no idea just what happened as the lava of and spewing forth of all your pain and bitterness goes out onto them and they have no idea. We're to be seeking peace and pursuing it, especially with one another. As we're broken together. You know, I like coffee. Anybody else like coffee? I like coffee. How many of you grind your beans? Anybody grind your beans? Oh, a few of you. The others will initiate you later. Okay. What I like about coffee, though, is it illustrates a great deal of the Christian life. It really does. Each of us as individual beings come together. And then what we do, we turn the grinder, and the the beans are broken together. Broken together. And see, what then they do, they put it in the, the, the coffee pot, and then the hot water comes in, and that awakens the flavor of the beans. Then it just goes all over the room. Because the scripture says in 2 Corinthians that we are the aroma of Christ. And we really, the the aroma really grows as the Holy Spirit works within us, but we have to be broken together in the grinder of grace first. 
the grinder of grace that we come alongside and be truly together. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere as we're broken together and we live this life. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other, the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? How much do we smell? I'm not asking the person how much you think the person next to you smells. How much do we smell as a body? We have to be broken together first, which means that we have to be together. You know that? We have to be together. And how do we get to do that? It's not just coming and worship on Sunday morning. Do you know where I find out that I learn most about myself and other people? Small groups. Small groups is essential to help us in our walk with Jesus. Because it's where we share, where we find out where things are. But many of us like to be anonymous Christians. We like to be anonymous. We get our spiritual fix and we get out. And we're not ready for the spotlight. But you know, God wants us to have that intimate connection. And when we have that connection, and it's fearful, I'll admit, because it exposes us to vulnerability and people making comments on our lives. Many of us have done that before and we've got hurt. We're afraid what people think. We're afraid what people are going to do, how they're going to say, how they're going to judge. Those are legitimate fears. And that's why we have to endeavor to understand grace. See, a lot of the reasons we've had those fears, I mean, there could be a legitimate reason why, because you honestly are in sin. That could be one reason. Or the other reason could be is because you've not yet experienced grace. Grace and mercy, God's gift to you. So we have to pursue the Lord together. It involves us just being connected, not only our, our conduct, but compassion and coming together living life together, learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But it also goes into one other arena, and that is our conversation. Our conversation. Conversation. I'm reminded in verse 9, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. See, following Christ in our village involves having the right conversation. Now, that means we're not to be deceitful, to speak evil, to be gossips, to be uh, maligning other individuals, to impugning character. And, and, and you know what? This is the most subtle of sins. And I, I know I've been guilty of it in my life. Because there's times when you share, and you can even share it in a spiritual way. You know, I'm just sharing this with you to, so you can pray for them. See, that's not good conversation. We can even have manipulative God talk. Did you know that? Manipulative God talk. I've seen this too often within the church. Not just, I'm not saying here. What I'm saying is the other Christians I've interacted with, that is the most deplorable thing that you can do. See, when the third commandment, it says, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God or take it in vain, it's not just referring to using God's name as a swear word. It's referring to saying that God said something that he didn't. I've seen too many Christians say that God told me, and it becomes the spiritual trump card for whatever situation they're dealing with, either as a way of avoiding conflict, of a way of manipulating another person. 
And I, I'm going to tell you right now, you better be very careful. If God said something, then he said it. And, and I can't deny that. But if you're saying that God said something that he didn't, then that's blasphemy. It's blasphemy against God. You are guilty of a deep sin in your life. Because you're trying to manipulate God to use him for your own advantages and purposes. That's scary to me. When I hear Christians do that and they say, God is telling us this. And, and it's just their way of avoiding conflict. You better be sure that it's God telling you that. Don't just pull that trump card to think that it's always going to work. Because that's a way of manipulation. See, we have to let God be the Lord of our conversation. We're not to be reviling or returning evil or using God as a way of manipulation to get what we want or to help our sinful desires. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees of old did. They were always hiding behind the law in a bad way. Just like when the Samaritan woman was, or the woman was caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, verse 1 through 12. And they bring the woman who was caught to Jesus, and they said that the law says that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? Now, if they really cared about the law, they would have brought the man and the woman, because the law dictated that the man and the woman were both supposed to be there. But they didn't care. They were trying to accomplish their own sinful devices, and that was to trap Jesus. They were using it for a sinful reason. And they were, that was manipulative God talk. We have to let God be the Lord of our conversation, which means also how we respond when other people come against us, because that's what's going on in the, con- the context. The word there for, for reviling is the idea of railing against, abusing, spewing forth this poison onto a person. And we have a tendency to want to justify ourselves. I know I do. I don't know about you, but I do. And that's why I'm am- amazed at Jesus that he kept silent. Jesus could have said, I'm innocent. You guys are totally abusing this entire thing. Stop it. And he didn't. He's our example. He's our template. We're not to be reviling for reviling. And we have to be responding in love to one another. That means letting God be the God of our conversation. If you want to do a really good study on words and what it means to have a good conversation, study the book of Proverbs. I've been writing in the tool shed about Proverbs, and I am amazed at how many times they talk about your speech and how much we can use our words to hurt, to wound. I mean, words are powerful things. We all know that. Each one of us in this room, I guarantee, are carrying scars from something that someone said to us that motivate us or that wound us, that limit us. Our words are powerful, powerful things. That's why not only the Proverbs talks about them, but James talks about them. In James chapter 1 and in James chapter 3, we have to be very, very careful how we use our words and our conversation. We're to speak truth, employ honesty, be as wise as serpents and shrewd as doves. And we have to watch and use our words very carefully. As Jesus said, I want to show you this passage here. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 2, verse 12, 33 through 37, he says this, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Simple enough. It's easy. An apple tree is going to be known by the apples it produces. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? They're pretending. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person brings out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. He goes on, so I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Now, we've all said stupid things. 
Every one of us has in this room. I, I found myself saying stupid stuff this morning to my kids right before we walked out the door. I did. It blew up. I was angry. We were running late. We had a lot of things going on this week, and I blew up on one of my kids. I felt ashamed. I stopped. I paused. I went and hugged her, and I said, forgive Daddy. That was a careless word. It just overflowed out of my heart, all this frustration, and I took it out. I'm like, God, you got to forgive me. You know, each one of us knows that we've said stuff like that in the heat of the moment. We've said things that we would regret, we'd like to take back. Then I freaked my daughter out more because I started to cry. Because I was wrong. I was wrong. And I got to let God be the God of my conversation too. And I got to admit it when I screw up and I sin. We all do. And there's grace. There's forgiveness. And when you, when you see parents, if you do that and you let your child see that, that doesn't, that does, some people think it, ru- it ruins my parenting. They know I make mistakes. Uh, no, it shows that you're human. It also shows that you're willing to be vulnerable and show that your walk with Jesus is authentic. It's authentic. So we have to be authentic and real in our conversation and how we speak to one another. Now, Peter understood, though, that we would experience opposition. We're going to deal with hostility and frustration and pain, and he wanted us to be prepared to know how to respond when it came. We must train ourselves for this to the best of our ability, to be ready when the time comes that when people do speak against us, we know how to respond to it. It's easier to prepare now so that when the heat of battle comes, your training kicks in. So we're told not to repay evil for evil. Now, What this means then, if we're to really pursue together as a village, we have to understand that it involves us cultivating the proper response toward haters. And I say haters, trying to use a popular terminology there, because we're going to experience haters. And studying this, the idea is is that these are people that are speaking against the Christian life and your life in Christ. But I also recognize that we're going to have other believers that we're going to struggle with. This applies to them as well. How do we respond to people that hate us, that speak ill against us? Are we going to try to justify ourselves and thump our chest and and call out and fight? Is that what we're to do? How do we respond? We have to have the proper response toward haters. Now, first of all, we have to understand that this this involves our attitude. Our attitude. How do we, if we're being reviled... And our attitude sometimes is, is that we've lost power, we're being questioned, it's questioning the essence of who we are. We have to understand that it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, and what the attitude did Jesus have when he was reviled, when he was accused, when he was misaligned, that he was still humble. You don't see him lashing out, beating his chest lifting up his jersey. You see that in sports? You know, like, look, look at me, look at me. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus is continually humble. He had the right attitude. And if we're going to respond properly, it involves us having the right attitude. Second, involves us having the right action. Action. Notice we're not to revile, return, repay. The literal idea there is paying back for what was done to us. And we we do this. I mean, I'm amazed at how, as adults, we don't change that much from times when we're kids. You ever watch kids do this? You, You see, you walk upon two little kids crying. What happened? He hit me. He hit you, right? Yeah. She hit me first. 
So it's kind and kind. I'm returning back for what they did to me, and they're both crying now. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You're not to return reviling for reviling, but to bless, to bless. Jesus talks a great deal about how we're to treat our enemies. I'd like us to to see this verse. Can we call that up here? Proverbs chapter 25, 21 through 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. What? I'm not giving my Panera to anybody. I'm not giving it to you, and I'm much less not going to give it to the guy that hates me. All right? So that's what Jesus says. Give him water to drink. I just picture him running over. Here you go. Here's some water. (laughs) You know, many of us will take the water and then we'll throw it. (laughs) But he's saying, no, give him water to drink. Hand it over to him. Give it up. Give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Say what? How am I supposed to do this? Well, Jesus draws this out a little further. I want to see this in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love them. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, uh, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you would wish others to do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, what he's saying there is this, is that sinners do all this other stuff. They respond when they're hurt in this vile way. We're not to be like that. Matter of fact, we're to be the opposite. When someone does evil to us, we're to be kind to them. We're to be loving to them. This is a hard thing to do. But that's what he's saying. Be kind to one another. To, to, be, to bless them, to bless our enemies. Yes, do we really bless these people that we completely disagree with all the time? Yes, we do. Even if they've done this, yes. Why? Because it, it's going to cause them to see who God is. What? Yeah, look at this verse. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The idea here is that God being kind to us leads us to repentance. It's not God coming down going, sinner, 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 sinner. It's God saying, I'm extending my grace and my love to you. I'm extending my grace and my love to you. Please uh, understand this. He gives us a will to respond. And sometimes we think of God as this cosmic cop or this, this guy who's always trying to break us down, but he's showing our loving kindness, to the, to the, his kindness to us to bring us to Repentance. That's grace. That's grace. So what he is calling us to do is when we respond to our enemy is to be kind in such a way that they'll brought to an end of themselves because it's so different than what they see in the world. That's what it's to be. We're to be forbearing with one another. So it involves, we see then that we need to be cultivating our response. It involves our attitude. 
It involves our action, and it also involves recognizing the right authority, or the real authority. What I, what I mean by that is li- this. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Jesus is the one who's in charge. He's sitting on the throne. He's the real authority. He's the one. We live our life before an audience of one. Jack Dixon does. Kyle does. Melissa does. Jim does. Gloria does. We all live our life before an audience of one. In other words, we're living in such a way to, to, that God will be the one that we look to, not what other people think of us. See, this is where hypocrisy comes in. Hypocrisy is doing something to get other people to think of us in a different way. When we try that, we're going to fail, and you're going to be found out eventually. But if you look at God as your authority and not what other people think of you, then you're going to be living your life in such a way that other people, you don't care what they think, but it will enable them to think of you highly because you're looking at a higher authority. So that's what's going on in this passage, is we're to understand that there is a much higher authority that it's God who's the one that's going to bless. It's God who's going to reward. It's God that's going to do all of these things as he brings things to an, a climax at the end of time, that we live our life before an audience of one. And when we do that, that changes how we live our life. When we live and understand that he is the one to whom we will give an account. He is the one that we are looking for to please. Now, being a stranger in this land gives us the wonderful privilege of knowing and rejoicing in the promised reward for living a holy life. In all of those passages that I just read, Jesus gives the object, the object of reward. Did you know that? There's a reward for doing what God wants you to do. Sometimes we have to say, oh, we don't want to have any impure motives. Well, Jesus is giving us motivation here as reward. Read the Sermon on the Mount. There's reward there. Blessed are you when you do this, for you will receive this. Blessed are you when you do that, you will receive this. There is the aspect of reward, of being acknowledged for what it is that you have done. So we need to be rejoicing in that. Even as we do these things that we're learning about and Peter is talking about within his word, we're going to be rewarded for that. And what is the first thing? He says, for those of you who desire life or love life and desire to see good days, the idea is, is that God is going to give you good days. We don't talk about this much. I mean, we do talk about suffering, and that's part of the Christian life, but do you know that God does give us good days? Do you know that? I mean, do we realize that? Some of us think, well, I could use a good day right now. But yeah, it, it's, it's not to say that you're going to have every day perfect. That's not what he's saying, but you're going to have good days in your life. What does it mean to have a good day? It doesn't mean that you go through life and never have anything go wrong. That's not what a good day is. A good day is the understanding of what it is that you have and the ability to enjoy it, to acknowledge it, and it changes your perception. For example, I'm a wealthy guy. I'm, I'm the wealthiest man in this room right now. You know why? I have a wife that loves me. I have children that I love dearly and respect me. I have a, a head, a roof over my head. I have food in my refrigerator. I have everything, and, and everyone's healthy. I'm a wealthy guy. I really am. See, what changes my perspective is when we start to compare. 
As soon as we compare, then we're no longer content. I don't need to compare. I've got everything. It's all taken care of. I'm enjoying it. I even had a man tell me who actually had a lot of money. And when I was, when we were going through a very difficult time and we were homeless for a little bit, um, staying at different friends' houses, and he, he was talking on the phone and he has, I mean, he's got a Jaguar and this Audi A8 or something like that. And then he's got this other Corvette he just bought. He's got this huge house. And I mean, he's got a lot of money, a lot of money. He just let us borrow the Jag once because we needed it. <laughs> Driving around in the Jag. People are like, what kind of church do you pastor? <laughs> you know? But he just said, you know, you're the, he even said it to me. He goes, you're the wealthiest man that I know. It had nothing to do with money. It's not about the bling. It's about the blessing. And that comes from a life well lived in obedience to God. So he gives us good days. Good days. We'll also find that God promises to respond to our requests. Notice in the text that his, his ear, his eyes are turned to the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous in verse 12, and his ears are open to their prayer, but his face is against those who do evil. See, the idea there is he, he listens to us when we, talk, we talk, when we talk to him. Do you know there was a man one time? He set up a 900 number. 900 number. Do you know what his service was? He just listened. Seriously. He made a lot of money. Because we all long for someone to listen. And God is willing to listen. And he's also willing to respond to our requests. Notice I didn't say that he's going to say yes to everything we ask. But he's going to respond to our requests. Tony Evans said that God's a lot like 7-Eleven. He's open 24 hours a day and he's got everything you need. It's very true. You know, we forget about that in our, in our day and age when we have things that are, that are always available to us. But see, God is always available. He never takes a break. He's never on hold. He's never busy. 